keeps flying by. Uh, he won the Furnace Award for his book, The uh, Justice and the Genesis of War. It came, it was published, uh, I guess, a decade ago now. So it's been a long time. Time does keep going by fast. In any case, it was great to have him uh, when he spoke about the Furnace uh, book that he did. He's been subsequently writing lots of stuff uh, on national security studies. He holds the George Yudnayev Chair of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Toronto. He has a PhD from Harvard, uh, and has written, I'm not going to read all of the books, there's just lots. Uh, he's been re-examining the Cuban Missile Crisis, he's been looking at uh, the Soviet collapse, intelligence in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he's written in all the major journals. And today, he's going to talk on uh, explaining foreign policy change. Uh, and I think with further ado, uh, David, I'll just turn it over to you. Well, thanks, Rick, and thanks for letting me come back. Uh, people probably don't know that I invited myself. Uh, so I wanted to come back, but Rick and uh, Randy and Alex and so on were very generous and said, please, and they, we'd love to have you. So I feel very welcome, and it's, it's nice to be here. And uh, it was actually longer ago than I thought, I think, the last yeah. time I was here. Uh, yeah, 10 years old. Yeah. The, uh, we're not 10 years old. We're not 10 years old. I don't know what it is. Uh, what I'm going to talk to you about today is actually my next book, which is almost uh, out. Uh, in fact, the publisher asked me to propagandize it a bit. <laughs> so, I still have some. Yeah, if anybody wants to know more, I can sort of pass some of those around. Oh, thank Thanks. Um, this is actually, I mean, Rick made it sound like I write a lot of books. It's, I don't write a lot of books all by myself. This is actually only my second single-authored book, and it was the last one that uh, was the Furnace Award winner. Uh, this book is about seven years overdue, and uh, I was feeling terrible about that. Um, but it turned out, I think, all to the good that it got held up, because uh, the problem I was tackling, I think, became more interesting as a result of 9-11 and the whole war on terror thing. So I'm going to talk a fair bit about the book, but what I want to do is I want to take what I do in the book and I want to stretch it to talk a bit about the war on terror specifically. So I'm going to begin with the war on terror and I'll come back to the war on terror. The book itself isn't on the war on terror, but what I hope to do is stretch the analysis at some point, uh, do an article on the war on terror, and I'm really using you folks as uh, sounding boards for some of those ideas. Every year, the State Department publishes an annual study of uh, terrorism in the world. It's called the uh, Patterns of Global Terrorism Report. They're available <coughs> on the web. You can download them at any time. This is a snapshot of the cover page of the 1999 Patterns of Global Terrorism Report, published in the year 2000. This is a 135-page document. It's a four-megabyte PDF file download from the State Department website clearly done in Microsoft Word by some intern sitting up late at night at Starbucks somewhere in Washington, D.C. Then this happened, and the next global terrorism report, 2001, morphed into a 240-page color glossy photo monster, 35-megabyte PDF <coughs> file obviously put together by a whole team of public relations specialists at the State Department working out of a dedicated office. A dramatic illustration of just how important terrorism had become all of a sudden in the U.S. foreign policy agenda. 
So what do you make of that cover? What's that? It's some cute graphic design that makes no sense to me whatsoever. It's not the tower? It's not like I don't know what it is. No, no, I have no clue what that cover is. All I know is it was expensive. <laughs> so terrorism is now on top of the U.S. foreign policy agenda. This despite the fact that as a global problem, according to the State Department's own figures, uh, terrorism has been declining in importance since the late 1980s. There's a very clear secular trend, which is negative overall, in the number of global terrorist attacks. It really did peak in the 1980s. If you want to know where terrorist attacks happen regionally for the period 1994 to 2002, it turns out Latin America, by the State Department's reckoning, was the hotbed of terrorism. That, of course, is mostly relatively small-scale attacks, as you'll see in a second, by paramilitaries <coughs> and by drug cartels, uh, not uh, Islamic fundamentalism of any kind in Latin America. Western Europe was also the scene of quite uh, a large number of attacks. These are mostly irredentist kinds of attacks, Basque separatists, things of that sort, but some Islamic terrorism in Western Europe. Asia, <coughs> Africa, Eurasia, they all had some, not a whole lot, of terrorist activity, uh, typically in this period. And you'll notice that North America is, uh, to all intents and purposes, a terrorism-free zone just hasn't happened very often. If you want to know what the average annual casualties are by region, again, over this same period, uh, Asia turns out to have the single largest average annual casualties, a little over 1,200. This is a totally misleading figure, by the way, because I've averaged total casualties over this arbitrary eight-year period. So most of the Asian, or a good chunk of the Asian uh, casualties here are the uh, people who were sickened by the Elm Shikyo attack in the uh, Shinjuku Station in Tokyo. North America is uh, significant on this chart. That's basically 9-11, averaged out over uh, an eight-year period. You'll notice that Africa tends to suffer annually <coughs> significant casualty levels. The Middle East, interestingly enough, tends neither to have a large number of attacks nor particularly high average annual casualty rate, even though we automatically tend to think of the Middle East as the problem area of terrorist uh, activity. What's the modal number of terrorist attacks uh, in these regions during this period? Well, the modal number is zero. And most of the State Department patterns of global terrorism reports will say that in North America during the previous year, there were no attacks and no casualties. And in fact, since 9-11, every State Department patterns of global terrorism report has said that North America has had no attacks and no casualties. Modal number of uh, casualties is under 20 in Latin America, under 50 in Eurasia. Again, it's the rest of the world that tends to have uh, the casualty problem, Africa, Middle East, Western Europe, and Asia. In other words, terrorism is globally, as well as regionally in North America, not a particularly big problem. Uh, it is a bit of a nuisance. Kerry was wrong to insist that he wanted to reduce terrorism to the nuisance level. It already is at the nuisance level and has been typically forever. The World Trade Center uh, attack, 9-11, and, uh, and the 1993 World Trade Center bombings and the Oklahoma City bombings are really the only three significant terrorist episodes in North America uh, over the last 15 years. So for the most part, um, 
This just isn't a major problem in North America. If you want to know where terrorism ranks on the list of causes of avoidable premature death, it's way down there, well below traffic accidents, smoking, handgun violence, obesity caused by eating supersized Big Mac meals. Uh, it just simply isn't that big an issue. And yet, it's at the top of the U.S. foreign policy agenda. Now, in one sense, that's not surprising at all. 9-11 is responsible for that. And 9-11 was a phenomenally psychologically powerful event. And I'm sure you all remember exactly where you were on the morning of September 11, 2001. And commandeering civilian aircraft and using them as weapons of mass destruction to attack highly symbolically valuable targets in the most graphically horrific way was bound to have a phenomenal effect on people's attitudes and was bound to make people see terrorism as a significant problem. So I don't think there's anything psychologically surprising about that. What's interesting is that before 9-11, counterterrorism was handled strictly as a routine security and intelligence issue in the United States. It wasn't even mentioned in the 2000 presidential campaign. Before 9-11, President Bush hadn't had a single briefing from his chief counterterrorism expert. And the very first principles meeting on the subject of terrorism in the Bush White House took place on September 4th, 2001. And yet, Osama bin Laden had declared war on the United States more than three years earlier in a fairly well-publicized speech on February 23rd, 1998. Al-Qaeda had already tried to destroy the World Trade Center in 1993 in an attack that killed six, injured 1,042, and caused more hospital casualties than any other single domestic event in U.S. history since the Civil War. American officials also knew that Ramzi Yusuf, the uh, mastermind of the First World Trade Center attack, had plans to fly aircraft into government buildings. And Bush's own director of central intelligence, George Tenet, had told Bush even before the inauguration that al-Qaeda posed, quote, a tremendous, unquote, and immediate threat to the United States. So the real question isn't why did terrorism all of a sudden become important to the U.S. foreign policy agenda. The real question is why hadn't it become more important earlier? And once it did become important, why did it become all-consuming? How did that happen? Why was it such an overreaction to the nature, scope, and scope of the threat? So as I say, I, I'm interested in trying to answer those questions and in a sense, the book I was working on at the time was working on exactly that kind of problem. So I want to talk a bit about the book, tell you what I was trying to do with it. By way of background, I had three big goals that I wanted to pursue. The first question I wanted to ask was whether it was possible to redeem the general theory project in international relations theory. And there I was reacting to the disappointment in the field with some of the early attempts to think very abstractly, very generally about international politics, the best known of which, of course, is Kenneth Waltz's 1979 theory of international politics. There was a lot of enthusiasm in the late 70s about general theory, parsimonious, portable, general theory, and because of our disappointment with structural realism in general, uh, I think we tended to lose interest in that project. I still I wanted to know whether it was right that we had lost interest in that project. Was there any way to redeem it? Was there anything we could say in general about international politics? I wanted to try to find out. I didn't think that we 
ever have the uh, Rosetta Stone to everything. Of course, international politics is always going to be full of surprises. Something was going to limit what we could do with general theory. So I wanted to ask the question, well, how, what are the limits? And what limits the general theory project? The third thing I wanted to do was to try to establish the policy relevance of general theory. One of the slightly frustrating things with, for example, Kenneth Waltz, was that he wasn't interested in policy relevance, other than apart from you know, the simple aphorism, if you wanted to survive in the international system, you should make sure that you maintain a balance of power. But then that would happen anyway, because it was a rather mechanistic theory. Um, I wanted to know whether there was anything more practical from a day-to-day -day perspective that policymakers could learn from general international relations theory. So those were the three background goals. What I do in the book is I craft and then I check out a theory of foreign policy change. It's not a theory of international political behavior. Waltz had a theory of international political behavior. How do systems behave as a result of states rationally adjusting to circumstances? From my perspective, I wasn't terribly interested in the question of why do states do what they do in general? Because we don't need to know why states do what they do in general. What states do today almost always is what they did yesterday. And what they did yesterday is almost always what they did the day before. Dramatic change in state behavior is very rare. We don't see it very often. So we don't need to explain why states do what they do. We only need to anticipate the circumstances under which they'll do something dramatically different. Inertia is the default expectation. Why is it that I think we don't have to worry about why states do what they do? It's not just that we don't have to worry about it, I would argue. I would suggest we can't explain in general terms why states do what they do. That's a hopeless goal because states respond differently to different circumstances and to different cues. What drives foreign policy in the United States is not typically what drives foreign policy in a lot of other countries. Some leaders take their cues from international systemic considerations a lot of the time. Some leaders respond to domestic political incentives. Some leaders respond primarily to their personal histories. Some leaders respond to their neuroses and psychoses. Some leaders respond to you know, deliberations in small decision-making groups more than anything else. If you look at any interesting case of foreign policy deliberation in international politics, you'll find really interesting variations in why leaders choose to do what they choose to do. And I became convinced over the years that you simply can't generalize about that. But you don't have to necessarily generalize about it because you can think of any foreign policy decision, any decision to continue with the status quo or to do something interestingly different, as a deliberation that has two parts. There are inputs, things that feed into the problem, and there is the processing of information once you have the inputs. Now, if the inputs are idiosyncratic and they vary radically from place to place and time to time and they vary from leader to leader, then uh, you certainly can't generalize about those. You don't have to necessarily, though, if you can generalize about the process. And I thought that that's where we might actually have the leverage to seek general portable international relations theory because there are reasons to expect that leadership groups anywhere at any time 
will process information in broadly similar ways. So as long as you can find the inputs you need in order to understand how leaders understand the situations they face, it might be possible, I thought, to generalize about how they would handle those inputs. And that might give you the leverage you needed to anticipate dramatic discontinuities in state behavior. What are the building blocks I use to do that? What are my grounds for optimism about generalizing about process? Uh, this isn't terribly counterintuitive, but I begin with the insight that all states run by governments, which are institutions. I mean, they're complex institutions. In some countries, they're much more complex than in others. But government is always an organizational thing, and states foreign policy decisions are all organizational outputs. And organizations everywhere exhibit certain tendencies and certain traits. All organizations have cultures, norms of appropriate behavior, ways of processing information, moving it through various different um, players. Uh, missions. Organizations have missions, and they understand their missions one way. Those, those don't change willy-nilly. Once they've understood their mission a certain way, that tends to be a fairly durable, sticky thing. When organizations are deliberating about what to do, typically you'll have some conflicts of opinion. You'll have some internal conflicts of interest. You'll have conflicting understandings of what might be in the state's interest. And so you'll tend to get a, a constellation of forces bearing on decision-making problems. Much of the time, those will cancel each other out. They'll stabilize around the status quo. So if you want to think of foreign policy decisions as a kind of vector sum of governmental interests, that helps us understand why inertia is the default expectation in international politics. The third thing that we find in organizations is standard operating procedures and routines. They just do things today the same way they did them yesterday. And while people do, can and do change routines, they don't do that frequently. They don't tend to do it readily. Uh, they'd rather not change their procedures of doing things. And again, that helps justify the expectation of inertia. So for these three reasons, organizations tend to be inertial themselves, and because governments are organizations, so also does policy tend to be inertial. And one of my favorite illustrations of that is the 10-year rule. Who's heard of the 10-year rule? Okay, just a few. After World War I, Britain found itself with an unnecessarily large armed forces, and uh, the Navy, of course, was the largest consumer of British resources. And government had to shift spending quickly, dramatically, from the military to civilian production, social services, and so on. So spending had to drop. Everyone knew that, and it did. The end of the war was an important discontinuity. The question was, at what, to what level should spending drop, and how should spending levels, force uh, structures, allocation decisions, be made? What was the guiding principle? And the British response to that was the 10-year rule. In other words, the civilian bureaucrats in the foreign ministry and so on told the military to plan on the assumption that they wouldn't be engaged in another major European war for at least 10 years. And that became a rolling planning assumption. Every year, they said, we won't be in a major war for 10 years. And that resulted in a remarkably stable level of naval spending. By 1922, it basically dropped to a level it would stay at until 1935. And spending, in fact, didn't actually start to rise significantly until 1936. 
Now, 10 years from that was 1946. World War II was over. They were, in fact, three years away from a major European war. And yet they hadn't managed to overcome the bureaucratic inertia that the 10-year rule uh, codified because it was just a terribly important and convenient bureaucratic compromise. Any attempt to move beyond the strictures of the 10-year rule, rule would meet overwhelming resist, resistance from competing interests inside the British government. Very typical illustration of how organizations and bureaucracies tend to be sticky. So that's one building block, organization theory. Then there's cognitive and motivational psychology, moving more toward the individual decision-making level. Um, this, is the, this is the one place in the country where I don't have to explain this stuff, because you folks do this stuff here better than anywhere else. Um, but anyway, the punchline of cognitive and motivational psychology, from my perspective, even though the story is complex and interesting, is that beliefs tend to be sticky. People don't change their beliefs easily once they've formed them. They resist changing them. They find ways of not changing their beliefs. And that means that we're naturally slow to perceive changes in the environment. And we may notice things are happening that don't seem to fit with what we believe about how the world works, but we don't quickly adjust our beliefs. We tend to try to defend them. We tend to try to explain away anomalies. We get defensive. We don't like to admit that we're wrong about our understandings. And so our <coughs> beliefs tend to lag the changes in the international environment <coughs> that would uh, normally prompt them if we were unconstrained by normal human information processing patterns. Third body of theory I draw on in the book is prospect theory, behavioral economics. Again, another complicated, interesting story here. How many are familiar with prospect theory, Kahneman and Tversky? Yeah. Most. Anybody unfamiliar? Don't be shy. Okay. It's, I'll, I'll give the short version of this. Um, with the whole, it's a very fascinating subject, but uh, Kahneman and Tversky were an economist and a psychologist that wa who wanted to study how people actually make choices um, when faced with uncertain, well, risky prospects. Um, payoffs of certain probabilities. What do their risk-taking behavior tend to look like? They discovered that people, in fact, aren't rational value maximizers. They don't do the equivalent of utility, expected utility maximization calculations. What they do is they ask, uh, what's an acceptable state of affairs? That forms a kind of a reference point for them. And if they face prospects of gain, they're going to do better than that acceptable state of affairs, then they'll take sure gains. They'll avoid good gambles. They won't take risks. If they're facing prospects of loss, actually they get risky. They take gambles. They try to avoid loss much more energetically than they try to secure gain. So one of the classic uh, experiments Kahneman and Tversky used to illustrate this tendency was they gave their subjects a choice between uh, a sure $3,000 win and an 80% gamble to win $4,000 and a 20% chance of winning nothing. And overwhelmingly, their subjects took the sure $3,000. If you do the math, it turns out that the gamble has a higher expected value. It's got a $3,200 expected value. When they flipped it around, right, and they gave their subjects a choice between giving them $3,000, they have to pay $3,000, or they can take a gamble, 80% chance of having to give up $4,000 and a 20% chance of having to give up nothing. Then their subjects overwhelmingly took the gamble. So to avoid the loss, 
they were risk-seeking. Even though the, giving the $3,000 for sure had the higher expected value <coughs> than the gamble. So people, in other words, tend to accept risks in the domain of, gain, of losses and to avoid risks in the domain of gains. So I drew on that insight, although in the book I'm very careful to show that I'm not actually testing prospect theory. Uh, you can't in international politics because uh, leaders don't have objective measures of payoffs and probabilities. They have to construct them subjectively, and they can be very impressionistic. Leaders of states make choices under conditions of uncertainty, not under conditions of risk. So you can't actually test prospect theory in IR. But you can be inspired by it, and that's what I am in the book. So the theory itself has three components. The first hypothesis is that foreign policy change should be less frequent in highly bureaucratic states with democratic regimes than in less bureaucratic states with autocratic regimes. And the insight here is simply that autocracies and states that don't have very complex governmental machinery can be more nimble. There are fewer constraints operating on them. They tend to be less subject to inertia. So that reflects the organizational <coughs> insights. Second hypothesis reflects the cognitive and motivational psychology insights. And this is that foreign policy change will be most likely when policy fails either repeatedly or catastrophically or when leaders become convinced that it will imminently do so. In other words, you really have to be hit over the head before you realize that you have to do something dramatically different. Third one is that all other things being equal, leaders are more likely to pay the costs and embrace the risks of foreign policy change to avoid losses than to realize gains of equivalent magnitude. Or put another way, it will take a lot more inducement in terms of prospective gain uh, to actually get leaders to change behavior significantly uh, than it would take prospective loss. Some people like this slide. Some people hate it. If you hate it, just ignore it. <laughs> but I thought it might be helpful, at least to some people, to at least visualize the, uh, the relationships I'm trying to get at here. So imagine that somebody is trying to decide whether to stick with the status quo, we'll call that policy A, or switch to their most favorite alternative, which would be policy B. You could think of that likelihood as a probability if you want to. Strictly speaking, it's not, but you, you can think of it that way heuristically. And that's the y-axis. What's the likelihood that you will actually observe the change? <clears throat> the x-axis illustrates the degree to which decision makers understand themselves to be facing a prospect of gain or facing a prospect of loss. And the further away you are uh, from the reference point, which is at the intercept, then the more attractive the gains or the more painful the losses. C and D are the curves for <clears throat> autocratic and relatively non-bureaucratic states. On the one hand, that's C, and democratic or more bureaucratic states on the other hand, and that's D. And they're just different because uh, I hypothesize in the first one that they have different sensitivity thresholds to losses and gains. So you'll notice that this part here, uh, you don't expect change of any kind. That's organizational and psychological insensitivity to small prospects of gains and losses. And you just don't see states constantly adjusting what they do on a day-to-day -day basis to reflect 
relatively minor changes in the incentive environment. So again, if you like that, fine. If you don't, never mind. Once I trot out and justify the theory, I then go see how it works. I don't test it. Uh, I don't have enough cases to test it. There's too many variables. N isn't big enough. I'm not entirely sure that it would be satisfactory to try to do a, a large N test anyway, because in order to decide whether these hypotheses are right, you really have to get under the hood and look in some fine-grained detail at exactly how leaders make the choices they make. So instead of testing them, I just test drive them, as I put it. I see whether they're comfortable, whether the ride is good, whether the fit and finish is good, how it accelerates and brakes and so forth and so on. And I do that by three sets of case comparisons. First comparison is a comparison of uh, territorial dispute cases. And I'm, here I'm trying to follow the structured focused comparison logic to some extent. Uh, I look at what happened in the Falkland Malvinas dispute between Argentina and Britain and what's happened in the Northern Territories dispute between Japan and the Soviet Union and Russia. Of course, the big observable difference there is that in 1982, Argentina went to war all of a sudden to force an end to its sovereignty dispute with Britain, which was a dramatic foreign policy change. Japan not only hasn't gone to war with the Soviet Union or Russia, it hasn't even threatened. There hasn't been a single threat of any kind. There's been a whole lot of pleading, a whole lot of whining, a certain amount of um, carrots, not as much as you might think, but offering some carrots uh, to try to get the Soviets and then later the Russians to actually move on this particular issue, but no threat of any kind. Some remarkable stability in policy there. So in that comparison, I ask, why do we see dramatic change in one case and not in the other? Second uh, comparison is a longitudinal one inside <coughs> one case, and that's the U.S. commitment to Vietnam, which, which exhibits long punctuated equilibrium. You had a very consistent U.S. policy from the fall of Dien Bien Phu up until 1965. All of a sudden, in 1965, you get a dramatic change, the Americanization of the war. That drags on for almost 10 years, eight years, really, in 1973. Finally, the United States gets out, basically says, never mind, and uh, that's the end of the story. So two interesting changes, uh, dividing long periods of continuity. Why do we see the continuity, and then why do we see the dramatic changes? Then in the third set of comparisons, I wanted to ask the question, well, does any of this work outside of the security realm? I'm a security guy, always have been. I'm not uh, a trade guy, but I thought I really should find out whether it travels. So I decided I would look at uh, an important political economy issue area, which was trade. And um, turns out that there were three times in the 20th century that the Canadian <coughs> government flirted with bilateral free trade with the United States, 1911, 1948, and 1988. And the first two times, there were deals on the horizon, and the Canadian government caught cold feet. Canada didn't do it. The third time, Canada jumped. So why the hesitation? Why the shying away the first two times and the, the jump, the third time. 
wanted to see how that worked. How did the cases work? How did they fit the hypotheses? <clears throat> These are my interpretations. Um, readers of the book will no doubt have their own. I hope they won't be too different. But as you can see, I think most of the cases tended to confirm my expectations, with some exceptions. I thought the best I could do in assessing fit was try to decide whether on balance the cases confirmed, on balance disconfirmed, or they were just too arguable. It wasn't really possible to categorize them as either confirming or disconfirming. Uh, we're commenting on a few things here. One is that the one case that didn't work as well as uh, I would have liked, ideally, was the Northern Territories case. That's because I think Japan's unwillingness to uh, do anything interestingly different in their dispute with the Soviet Union and Russia was overdetermined. There were all kinds of reasons why they didn't do that. You don't actually need my theory to explain it. Uh, there is a, a strategic context which was incredibly powerful. Picking a fight with the Soviet Union or Russia would have implicated the United States because it was a close security partner of Japan. You had the history of Japanese militarism in Asia, which more or less made military options uh, totally unacceptable to begin with. You had the uh, strong domestic anti-militarism in post-war Japan, which also really tied the government's hands. Uh, and you had Japan's deep, rich unwillingness to, try to rattle the Asia-Pacific security situation uh, in the background uh, the whole time. So. That one's overdetermined. You don't need my theory. That's why I classify uh, that case as ambiguous or undecidable on the second and third hypotheses. The 1911 reciprocity case, the first time Canada flirted with free trade with the United States, I had to handle a little bit differently because you had really two decisions there rather than one. You had the government's decision to embrace it, which I uh, saw as disconfirming because that decision was not in any respect driven by a perception of failure. So it didn't fit hypothesis, too. Uh, on the other hand, once the government started, once the government had concluded the deal and started to promote it, um, opposition arose, and the government felt they had to have an election on the issue, and there was an election, and the government lost. So the electorate actually rejected reciprocity in 1911 for reasons that really do fit hypothesis too much better. A uh, couple of other comments about this table. Uh, it looks like a great outcome. All of the cases had elements that were either, um, either challenged the theory or pointed up gaps and weaknesses in the theory. And in the conclusion of the book, I really reflect some detail on this. I mean, I don't want to make any claims about the theory performing superbly under all circumstances. Uh, there are limitations there. Uh, which I think are instructive, and I dwell on them in some detail. There are also, I think, alternative ways of trying to explain foreign policy change that I don't explore in the book, but that might well be very much worth exploring. Uh, for example, just to give you a teaser, uh, on my first set of case comparisons, the Falklands, Malvinas, and the Northern Territories, uh, you could make an argument that one reason the Argentine government left toward a military solution in 1982 was that they were very myopic, they had a very um, very blinkered worldview. Um, they did not understand international society, they weren't interested in it, 
They operated in a kind of frontier land of international politics. Uh, I'm, as far as I know, the only English-speaking scholar that interviewed all three of the members of the junta that invaded the Malvinas. These were scary guys. I mean, they, they were really Wild West types. Japanese leaders are deeply socialized and very committed to international institutions and, and stable norms of international governance. International society constraints operating on Japanese foreign and defense policy are significant. So in other words, a constructivist might come along with an alternative theory of foreign policy change and quite efficiently explain that particular difference. So I don't want to make any claims about the theory being the only one possible. I don't happen to trot out and, and test a constructivist alternative, but I think one would be very interesting and well worth exploring. Although the first hypothesis looks as though the cases confirm it very well, I also want to say that I think that's the least interesting hypothesis, uh, in part because it's intuitive. You should expect countries more constrained by their structures of government and their processes of government uh, not to be so nimble, not to be able to change their policies so readily. So that's not surprising. And moreover, that first hypothesis doesn't really give you a handle on the reasons for change when you see it. It gives you a handle on the reasons for inertia when you don't see change. So I think the second and third hypotheses are actually much more interesting because they give you a handle on the change itself. First one I think is still important, still worthwhile, but the second and third are the more interesting parts. So if I'm right, uh, what are the implications for IR theory? Uh, first is that I think general theory is possible and is fruitful, not necessarily for all questions, but at least I think with respect to this one, uh, it attempts to explain foreign policy change anywhere <coughs> at any time. Scope and conditions are very, very broad. Uh, they aren't universal. And I do talk about some of the constraints on the scope conditions. I don't think, for example, that the theory works uh, for Adolf Hitler, a certain category of leader, the risk-seeking, megalomaniacal, uh, pathologically psychotic leader, doesn't exhibit the risk-taking propensities that the theories undergirding this particular theory would predict. So some of the cases are going to be outside the scope. But most cases, I think, probably are inside the scope. I don't think that this theory or any other can be predicted in the strongest possible sense. It's not going to help you see the future with a crystal ball. Uh, but I think that general theory can at least be anticipatory. It can help you understand the circumstances under which certain things are more likely than they normally would be. And I think that that is also a useful thing. And the third implication for IR theory is that I think, broadly speaking, the positivist epistemology and methods that I tried to use here uh, are vindicated. And there are limits to the precision uh, of what I do. Always are limits to the precision. There are always um, horizons of uncertainty, but I think that those are uh, tolerable and that these cases tend to bear that out. What about the implications for policy? Remember I said I wanted to say something that would be useful to policymakers. I think here there are two areas uh, where policymakers might want to pay attention. One is strategic warning. When I was doing the book, I went looking uh, for literature on strategic warning. I knew of a little of it, but I thought there must be a whole lot more. It turns out there isn't. There's shockingly little literature on strategic warning. Um, and most of it 
tends to draw inspiration from rational deterrence theory and other deductive approaches to international politics. Um, not much of it is organizationally informed or psychologically informed. And so I think there is a story to tell here for intelligence analysts who want to try to anticipate when leaders of other countries are going to do interestingly different radical things. Classic illustration of this was the period leading up to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in 1990, which Western intelligence agencies did not anticipate because they looked at the correlation of forces and they decided that Saddam Hussein would not be foolish enough to take on the United States and the rest of the region and the rest of the world. Uh, he couldn't possibly win that fight, so he wouldn't get into it. Once he got into it, once he occupied Kuwait, of course, these same analysts thought that he would back down quickly and readily because the conditions for compellence were perfect. I still remember Henry Kissinger saying on television the night before Operation Desert Storm started, uh, when Peter Jennings asked him if Saddam Hussein will withdraw from Kuwait, Kissinger said, of course he will withdraw from Kuwait. He would have to be totally irrational not to withdraw from Kuwait. Well, he didn't withdraw from Kuwait. I think uh, intelligence analysts working with uh, a theory like this would take a different approach. It wouldn't be deductive. It would be inductive. I mean, you would ask questions such as, do leaders in the target state describe their concerns in the language of need rather than the language of desire? Do they freely employ the language of ongoing or prospective loss rather than the language of prospective gain? Do they describe the status quo as intolerable or unacceptable in contrast to simply disadvantageous? Do they events stridency, desperation, limited patience? Do they speak of a deadline? Is there some kind of forthcoming liminal event that they seem to have in their mind? Uh, do they characterize their demands as categorical? When you probe for opportunities for compromise or partial satisfaction or side payments, does that irritate them or does it elicit their interest? Are they relatively free agents or are they operating in a context of severe bureaucratic or domestic political constraint? These are the kinds of questions you would ask to try to assess the likelihood of some dramatic change. So I think there is a, a policy-relevant story to tell there. The other issue area where the story is relevant is in negotiation in any domain, not just the security domain. If you want to assess rightness for a bargain or try to identify someone's resistance points, how far can you push them and still get a deal, then you may still want to ask questions of the kind I ask here. This is an issue area where the story I tell isn't really news because the people who work on negotiation theory have already internalized those same bodies of literature that I draw on in this book. So what I have to say, I think, reinforces what's already known in that field. It doesn't necessarily add to it. Finally, back to the war on terror. If my story is right, and if what I do in the book actually does fit what's happened in the war on terror relatively well, and I think the lateness of the war on terror is fully intelligible. You needed 9-11 as a dramatic illustration of painful loss in order to energize the policy change, in order to uh, demolish the bureaucratic inertia that had, frankly, made Bush's first-year Iraq policy the same as Clinton's Iraq policy, which had more or less inured the United States to al-Qaeda as a threat all through the 1990s. 9-11 changed everything in a way 
that is fully intelligible given the focus uh, in the book on experienced or perceived likely future loss. The overreaction is also, I think, fully intelligible. Uh, it's normal human psychology that we overreact to that kind of profound experience. And if leaders of states were very talented, rational calculators, then the scope and scale and nature of the war on terror would reflect the actual size and nature of the threat. It's a huge overreaction, but it is psychologically in particular and organizationally uh, an intelligible one. Uh, finally, it's not a rational response to the threat, but then leaders of states aren't, in interesting senses, rational uh, much of the time. Some of the time, no doubt, much of the time they aren't. And with those by way of teasers, uh, I'll stop. I understand we typically have till 1.30, is that right? 1.15, So uh, if you have to go, feel free. I won't be offended. Just a quick question, because it jumped right on your last comment. The size of the threat? Does the size of the threat change at all about the possibility they might get nuclear weapons? And that was the president. President's argument at West Point, right, that radical ideologies and weapons of mass destruction is much more than bricks. I mean, planes in the building, and it's not. Yeah. You know, that's very, you know, it's really different from nuclear weapons, and I think you're correct, but I mean, does, does nuclear weapons make it? Yeah, if Al Qaeda could, could get nuclear weapons and could deploy them in North America, that would make it a significant threat for sure. Okay. So then the question is, what's the likelihood of that? Okay. So and I would say tiny. Yeah, I, I, Vanishingly I tiny. I'm just wondering if you put that in. Okay. Right. Uh, could we draw some parallel between uh, the experience of general theories as opposed to predictive theories? I think by and large, we take a look at different disciplines, the more general the theory, uh, the more of course, as you point out, the more the inability to predict the concrete cases. What usually happens is that people become specialists in special theories. And under those special theories, what they really do, what they really do is say, I am going to concentrate, usually come, end up with a, a typology. And the typology says that usually defines what areas you're going to find empirically, empirically testable. So you tend to develop theories that get just specialist theory, I mean special theories, <clears throat> as political theory, as uh, symbolic interaction theory, or some other kinds of theories. And then you usually get the specification <coughs> of, uh, of situations. Uh -huh. So these yeah. two variables are terribly important. So that well, if you take a look at the, at the situation, for example, you take a look at China and Taiwan, then you can start to ask yourself what kind of theory is most applicable to that situation, that set of relationships. So all I'm saying that one way out of the box is to point out that, uh, that general theory is sensitizing, whereas... Uh, uh, let's say predictive theory, is uh, much more empirically, empirically, uh, uh, what shall I say, circumscribed. Mm -hmm. And situational theory then tends to circumscribe that even more. Right. Would that be a way to approach the general problem? Yeah. yeah, I think you're probably right. I think as a, a comment on how we tend to work 
in social sciences, I think that's exactly right. Um, China and Taiwan is an interesting one uh, that I think about a fair bit. I worry about China and Taiwan a lot. One reason I'm not as worried as I might be is that the mainland Chinese have never actually set a deadline for the return of Taiwan. So there's a, a sort of open-ended patience, which is the good news. Uh, it means they don't actually experience the loss yet. Uh, however, if they were to feel the loss was imminent, uh, then this theory would predict a very high likelihood of dramatic change because they care so intensely about it. So if there were a declaration of independence, you know, batten down the hatches. Uh, this despite the fact that, you know, rational deterrence theory would tell us we should still relax then because of the U.S. commitment to Taiwan. That should deter Chinese action. But, you know, if I were a betting man, which I'm not, but if I were, I would bet that China would not be deterred from attacking even if there were an American guarantee. Um, actually, what you just said, I have two questions, but one is that they wouldn't be sure. It reminds me of those were 20 odd years ago about the need for victory overcoming rational deterrence posture. Many mistakes said about that, you recall, one day to buy stuff, mm -hmm. where you can make no difference what kind of rational objective deterrent posture you've adopted. The decision maker on the other side has a need to challenge it, will perceive it as challengeable. But I have a couple of questions about conflating things. Because um, it seems that you conflate your organizational theory with regime type. And your slides are all about organizational theory. And you lay out the logic of organizational theory, which makes sense. But somehow you import in regime type, democratic versus part versus autocratic. And it's unfair to me by the time you get done, which one is actually doing all the work. Because presumably you could have um, under bureaucratic <laughs> autocratic regime, what then would you predict? Right. What would you predict for no. the same thing with democratic uh, country? The, the other conflation I thought I saw was um, risky action equals change. Um, as Randy would likely say, what's risky about going to war? Sometimes it's risky not going to war. Um, it's, it's unclear whether, I mean, again, obviously the big book has a lot more information than this talk. I was just wondering whether all change is by definition risky in your, your collection of cases. Um, I think what happened, I mean, again, require a lot of deep empirics. Perhaps what happens is that when decision makers come to the conclusion that not changing is risky, then they engage in the action which then you code as a risky shift or a risky change. But in fact, subjectively speaking, they've already convinced themselves that not changing is what's risky. Right. Yeah, good question. Uh, in the talk you just heard, it, it does appear there's a conflation between um, regime type and state characteristics. In the book, there's no conflation. I break them out, talk about them separately, but there is a lacuna in the book. And you know, if you think of the two by two, in fact, I can only really talk in hypothesis one about two of the four cells, which is where you get the democratic, highly bureaucratic states and the autocratic, less bureaucratic states. And the question you ask, what do you do about those other two cells? That's a good question. And I don't have any way of integrating those two considerations. And I thought hard about how I might do that. And I decided at the end of the day, probably couldn't do it well enough to justify the effort, and so I left it as kind of a lacuna. So you're right that that is a problem. And by the way, it, there are, in my own cases, uh, some interesting apparent counterexamples to the expectations from the first hypothesis. And one is that, you know, Richard Nixon actually felt spurred to change his policy on Vietnam by the looming prospect of an election in 1972. 
And so there's a case where the democracy of the United States was actually hastening a dramatic foreign policy change. So uh, that particular hypothesis clearly doesn't work in all cases. And you would think that if you combine failure with democracy, well, also, I think we'll talk to you too, but I know people don't like to think that way. But anyway, democracy plus failure means we got change. Otherwise, we get thrown out. I mean, I think autocrats believe the same way, frankly. Whatever. I got a point in your list. Like, it seems like there's some variables, right? Somehow, more important than others. Yeah, I think you're right, and I wrestled with what to do about that. And one strategy was to try to just become much more refined in that hypothesis and try to, you know, specify more precisely the conditions under which we would expect this, that, or the other thing. I thought, you know, the end of that road is tautology. <laughs> you know, we should expect Y, uh, except in cases well, where X is more true, likely. Though. Yeah, but they're not. <laughs> they're true, but they're not satisfying. <laughs> and, uh, and the other thing, you know, I, I frankly thought, uh, who's going to read this book? And I, part of the answer is, you know, doctoral students and I are seminars. And I want them actually to see something that's got some obvious holes left open that I decide not to plug, right? That's part of how we learn about how to think about the world. And in the book special I special study guys directly but in the book I do say, look, you know, here, here is this problem. This problem you've identified. I do say, you know, this this is a problem and it's here. And you know, I, I can't do anything with it in the book, but there it is. And, and who knows what people might do with that. So I thought hmm. I take my clothes off for pedagogical reasons in the book. You know. Um, okay, second question, you know, what is risky? Yeah, I mean, sometimes the change is the risky thing, and sometimes uh, not changing is the risky thing. And that is, uh, that is certainly true. And when you reconstruct leaders' perspectives on their problems, uh, you can see that. And you do have to, uh, you have to follow that, so that if you're not changing looks like uh, the risky thing, then you should anticipate the change for sure. That's true uh, in a lot of cases where, for example, prospect theory and rational choice predict the same outcome. Uh, a lot of people who were excited about prospect theory said, oh, this will help us explain Pearl Harbor. Uh, you didn't actually need prospect theory to explain Pearl Harbor because, you know, a rational gambler in Japan would also do Pearl Harbor because they thought inaction meant certain disaster. So even though action had a low probability of success, an acknowledged low probability of success, you know, it's still a rational gamble given the alternative. So yeah, you're right on both of those. Thank you. Yeah, I, could you go back? I have similar questions about. Go back, right? Could you go back to the slide where you have like risk of the cases and you have, you know which ones work and which didn't work. Yeah. Actually, I think the perceived failure ones. I find like that's a, that borders on tautology to me. I mean, it isn't strictly speaking, but it's so proximate because you wouldn't change your policy unless you thought there was something wrong. I mean. Uh, even if it were domestic, you know, even if we're worried that the policy wasn't working, just that domestic didn't seem to. I mean, like, why would you change a policy that's succeeding, you know, fairly well? So, I mean, that doesn't interest me, you know, the failure thing, because you can code that in any which way. Like, uh, and that's what I'm kind of interested in, the losses versus gains, particularly. How did you, if you go through, there's so few cases, like, it's another one where Hitler, anything can be perceived as a loss. I mean, leaders almost always talk about losses, even when they're aggressive. They, they would say, well, you know, the Aryan, I'm protecting the Aryan race. I'm protect, this is a justification. Nobody ever says, I just am greedy. I'm a greedy bastard. I want more power. And it's always there's some justification, and they sometimes believe it. I'm sure Hitler believed a lot of what he was saying. 
that's another thing. I'm just curious how you did that, and also the problem reference point. I mean, this seems like very difficult to me. The one that I thought was the, the least proximate was the one that you said was not interesting, and that's the state characteristics. Because I think there, I don't really see the causal connections that you're making. I'll give you an example. Uh, and maybe they're there. I haven't read the book. But, uh, like, it doesn't, most of these rigid cognitive processing theories are about individuals, right? Mm -hmm. So, take Stalin in 1941. He won't believe that Hitler's, he's trusting Hitler. For, I mean, why he would trust Hitler, I have no idea. But he's rigidly doing it, no matter what the evidence shows. He won't change his policy, right? So, it would seem to me that there's no reason a priori to suspect that a leader that is unencumbered, uh, that is unconstrained, would, wouldn't follow some of these rigid, you know, processing. I mean, it seems to me most of the cognitive things say, oh, you see what you want to see, you know? So, so why wouldn't that be the one that's least likely to change? Whereas in a democracy where you've got all these voices and all this information and all this, you think they're the ones that are precisely the ones that are going to change their policy. Can I because Stalin's also a great example of radical policy change, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, right? Aligned with fascists, nothing right. more dramatic than that. Well, autocratic, polybureaucratized state, exactly the state would expect to do it, A. And B, he does it for games. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so good, good, good question. Uh, let me just begin by noting these are quite different, okay? So the perceived failure hypothesis taps into the, the our unwillingness to change our beliefs about things, right? and how a, a sort of irrefutable perception of failure forces us to change belief. That's the mechanism behind that hypothesis. And what you have here, and why this is disconfirming, is that it was rosy economic times in 1911 in Canada. Everything was great. Along comes this American proposal for free trade, which actually looks like a gain, a sure gain, and the government of Canada decides, you know, there's no risk here. This is a winner across the board. So what happens is you get uh, foreign policy change by the government in which perceived failure plays no role whatsoever. That's why it's just disconfirming. However, there was this prospect of gain. And if I can go back to my huge prospect of gain, right? Well, remember, you, this predicts change on the gain side also. But it's asymmetric. So marginal prospects of gain won't elicit any change in behavior, but huge prospect of gain will. And that's where the government of 1911 saw themselves. So that's the one case where there's actually action on this side of the, uh, the graph. Another reason why I don't claim to be testing, because if I were testing, I'd need you know, action well, on both sides. I think that, that I think that you would find that in economic relations, there's much more about gains than losses, right? Whereas in security studies, it's not called aggressive, aggression studies, it's called security. You're going to always be talking about more defensive. You know, they tend to think right. of things. Well, there's a status quo bias, right? And reference points do tend to... <laughs> and reference points do often tend to reflect the status quo. That's very, very common. Um, so I... That's, that's that. Now, on, on Stalin, sure, I mean, nothing that I say would say that somebody like Stalin can't make risky behavior. <coughs> turns out that uh, I exclude Stalin from my scope conditions. <laughs> <laughs> and he and Hitler are the two I leave off. So um, you got, like, the interesting ones, like, that and... Stalin and Hitler were nuts, you know, and I don't think my theory can really capture the behavior of lunatics. Uh, 
which would be a big problem, by the way, if there were a lot of lunatics out there. But interestingly, lunatics are becoming a little bit rarer. But I just want to be like, how do you do the reference points, though? I mean, like, I think that's the biggest thing, cross-state theory, because it seems like a lot of actions going in there. How, how did you tell There's actually no theory of reference point formation. There's a bunch of uh, suggestions about mechanisms that should lead you to expect certain things possibly to be reference points. But the reference point thing, I just exogenize. You go look. What do people actually describe as an acceptable state of affairs? What can we tell from the record about uh, how they see the world? What would actually satisfy them and what wouldn't? You, you have to discover that. And all the input stuff in the theory here, that's all exogenous. You know, roll up your sleeves, do your detective work, you know, actually study the world rather than reflect deductively on it. You've got to bring that all to the theory, which is one of the limits. I mean, the information costs for using this are pretty high, for sure. I had a question going back to the topic about not changing the university. I'm thinking about the Falklands. I'm thinking about the government perceiving that. What, what about the idea and how do you treat the idea of using war as a distraction for other problems? In this case, Argentina's economy not doing well, Latin American financial crisis. Right. There's problems here. Well, all of a sudden we've had this issue here going to stay on the back burner for a long time. Let's go ahead and engage in this conflict take the attention away from all these other problems that could lead to right. us losing power and so forth. How does that how does that kind of idea fit into this? Were they actually changing it, it doesn't because that's not what was going on. <laughs> In English speaking literature we we become fixated on the idea that that's why Argentina did it. No. It had nothing to do with it. I mean you can tell from the details of the decision exactly why they did what they did and the the economy and the domestic politics were not in play. Now, actually, if they were in play, you know, it still might fit the theory, right? Because it still might have that perception of, you know, imminent loss, and so you have to. So the theory might actually work in cases where you misspecify the imperative. But that would be a lucky shot. That would be a totally lucky shot. Same with Hitler, right? I exclude Hitler from the scope condition. But the false negatives are much more likely than false positives with the theory, and so you might get a lucky shot, even if you're using the theory to explain Hitler. So what was the reason that they went that's a long, interesting story. Let me give you a short version. Um, yeah, one of the... This is the short version. The real short version. It was a three-man junta, and the commander-in-chief of the Navy, uh, Admiral Anasha, was obsessive, compulsive on the Malvinas issue. And he agreed to support Galtieri as president on condition that they recover the islands by the 150th anniversary of the... British seizure, and the guy was just completely obsessed on the Maldives. Now, why was he completely obsessed? That's a really interesting story. Um, Argentine elites, way back in, as far as the 19th century, had this problem of how to cultivate a sense of national identity when it was an immigrant population from all over the world, mostly Europe. Um, they had to cultivate a sense of national identity for political purposes to consolidate, and they did that deliberately by inflaming irredentist claims against neighbors. And they deliberately targeted textbooks as the vehicle, the idea being you get them when they're kids. And when they grow up to become Argentine adults, they'll be Argentine nationalists. And that worked brilliantly. And uh, Carlos Escudé has tracked this and shown that the textbooks over the years have emphasized different irredentist claims. It started off with Uruguay, went on to Brazil, went on to Chile. So by the time the Malvinas actually start topping the irredentist claim list in the textbooks, uh, Anasha and Galtieri are the first cohort to go through the elementary schools. They were socialized politically when that was the big issue. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it took root. Post war. Yeah, post war. Yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, pre war. Just pre war. Probably worth adding to that story that they had pictures of the Malvinas showing them as a paradise on earth, and when the soldiers actually uh, got there, uh, they were bitterly disappointed. And uh, that was part of the reason why the morale was so <laughs> <laughs> and why they lost cold to eat. Al Haig was pretending to mediate that dispute, right? And he went down and he met these guys, and the Nasha meets him. And the first thing he says is, my son is willing to die for the Malvinas, and it would be my family's position that would, we would be honored that his blood mingled with this sacred soil. <laughs> and, you know, I talked to this guy, too, and he was still hot to trot. Even Hague thought he was crazy? Hmm? Even Hague Oh, yeah, even Hague thought he was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's really an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, how does it sound that also, you knew from the beginning that Japan, the relationship between Japan and the Soviet Union, respectively Russia at that time, were constrained by the international context at this particular point, and therefore would not give you, or not you, but not give too much freedom of move to Japan in terms of making a, a change in politics in terms of the fact that you still took that case as a comparison. Oh, because the outcome was so different. But you know, you knew from the beginning that they didn't have too much of an other choice, right? It was not. Oh yeah, I had that hunch, but you know, you have to go with case selection on a good principled grounds, and even though I could see in advance that you know what, this was probably an overdetermined case, um, it's it was just a perfectly focused comparison. So I chose it for methodological reasons. How do you handle the prediction problem? Well, I, I don't think you can predict change, but you can anticipate the conditions under which it's more likely. And one reason you can't predict change is nothing in the theory will tell you what the most likely alternative is, what the most favored alternative is. You actually have to go discover that. And it's a gap in the theory that it can't give you a handle on that. Well, the general theory is structured. I mean, general theory describes things at rest, it seems to me and that your predictive theory and so forth begins to work more with the whole process business uh-huh. rather than structure. Yeah, there, there are dynamic general theories. I mean, I could be talking about the difference between static general theory and dynamic general theory. I mean, it's easier to be static general theory, but there are dynamic theories that are general theory. We have them. Change. Even we have them. <coughs> Guilt, I mean. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Explain, uh, I'm still in trouble getting this. Uh, why you aren't essentially predicting the war will never happen? Is it because there's some dramatic things that people really get kicked off because on the inside there's the occasional fanatic, in which case I think you should include Hitler, not exclude him? Yeah, I exclude Hitler because he doesn't, is, is fit, he doesn't fit the psychological profiles that the theories I draw. Uh, and, um, well, no, no, actually, Saddam, Saddam fits actually quite well because he's, according uh, to Jerry Post, actually highly rational. What's weird about Saddam is his worldview is uh, wacky, and it's wacky in part because people who could correct his worldview tend to get shot. Well, he says the reason he started the war in 1991 was because he was insulted. Uh, yeah, he said a bunch of things about that, yeah. But um, 
you know, he's also said afterwards that his mistake was not waiting until he had a nuclear weapon. So he's sort of capable of fairly cold-blooded calculation as well. Um, but what was I going to say before that, before we got on to Saddam? The issue is why, why this war is Oh, because sometimes right, but sometimes war is the risk the risk you accept in order to recover or attain an acceptable state of affairs. That will sometimes be the case, and we you can see that There's in the history of the outbreak well, of war, you do see that not always, but you do see they that. Kind of become logical, right? Because they did, so therefore we reveal preference. They went to war, so therefore Well, Hitler went to war for gain, right? Not it was risky, but he did it to, for gain, and it was very clearly saw that as a gains frame. So I, I would not say that all well, choices for war are choices to avoid losses. I would say where leaders see not going to war as accepting a sure loss, then that would predict. Point that most wars are gain. Yeah, but, uh, there's gain, isn't it? No, it depends yeah, on the record. There's gain, the prospect is to take one, avoid loss. Losing hurts more than winning feels good. Right. And so consequently, there's always going to be some gain, eventually, but it's not worth it. So you, it very, you know, but it depends on how the actual leaders frame it, right? What is their reference point, and do they assess the status quo as short of it so they need or better than it? Yeah, they'll be insensitive to minor prospects of gain, and they'll be insensitive to small experiences of losses for organizational reasons, if nothing else. That would be the way I would put it. But I wouldn't see a tautology. I, you'd expect war sometimes, but not often, because inertia is the expectation. It's the default expectation. In 1977, sometimes hotter than colder, sometimes indirectly supporting them against Iran, but always keen to see that regime change. And in the 90s, most of the people who eventually led Bush to overthrow it were writing openly to overthrow it and worked hard. And the U.S. tried uh, several covert operations against Iraq in the mid-1990s. They failed. They had sanctions unrelenting for almost 12 years. And you, you described this huge change in American foreign policy. What I see is a war on terror, war on uh, strengthening Arab states, let's say. It's been 25 years. And in fact, I see huge continuity, in fact, overwhelming continuity in American foreign policy in the Middle East the last 25 years. Very little change. We're, we're fluctuating between hitting them and hitting them harder and hitting them really hard. And so, you know, we get after 93, some efforts to overthrow in 96, and then when they hit the World Trade Center, we, we escalate. But if you're thinking of it in terms of change of policy, like Gorbachev goes from hostile to the United States to not hostile to the United States, or uh, Sadat decides to change from a uh, strategy of confrontation to a strategy of, of negotiation, I see this as sort of, you know, I know what the prescription ought to be, I just haven't given it enough yet. So now, by God, you know, we're going to triple the dosage and smash these guys. But um, I guess I don't see here how you would predict change. I mean, why, why, do we, why do you call this such a big change? And why didn't we get real change? You know, the kind that would say, God, you know, our policy in the Middle East is screwed up. Right. We ought to start thinking differently about Islam, about 
the nature of our role there, you know. And, yep. and sort of the way Gorbachev might have done in the early 80s or mid 80s when he started there thinking about Afghanistan. Yeah. What about Israel? Right. So yeah, I guess I'm. I'm not so persuaded. Uh, that the, the question of what's what's a change, what's, yeah, what's, a what's change? significant change, that's a good one. And in the book, I wring the hands about that a lot and open myself to graduate students a lot. But um, <laughs> uh, it's clearly a gray area between, you know, more of the same and something that's fundamentally different that catches everybody's attention. And in some cases, you can have an interesting argument about how to classify certain things. But on Iraq and Middle East policy in general, I would go to you. I would see American policies primarily unchanging for most of the period and what you see are some tactical adjustments like things like little stupid hopeless special forces operations against Saddam those are you know, tactical adjustments to the larger continuous policy of let's see if we can kind of get rid of this guy in a costless way and that goes on for years and years and years policy towards Iraq after the Gulf War until this war in Iraq was flat totally unchanging. I mean, there wasn't any interesting variation, I would say, in it. And I think you're right. U.S. policy in the Middle East has been astonishingly steady throughout the period. There's a radical change against Yeah, there are a couple, of, are couple of changes that are, you know, that grab headlines and but strike but people but as discontinuities. There are places where we see big change. I mean, Gorbachev, I think, changed things pretty dramatically. Oh, sure, absolutely. So he's in an ultra-bureaucratized state. Right. And he's not in the domain of failure. There's no imminent, you know, crisis looming. Yeah, that I would disagree. That I would disagree with. And yeah, uh, he's not in the domain of losses. I, I don't think. And he didn't face a huge failure. I think he was in the domain of losses. I think he saw imminent disaster. Yes, how does he become leader of the Soviet Union, a reformer? If everything were going hunky-dory, you think they would have been, oh, let's pick Orbitos. They tried Chernyanko. They tried, you know, I don't think we can reform you. I think this is a work a little bit different from radically changing it. Well, he also didn't anticipate, you know, country unraveling the way it did. But what's the 9-11 shock? The equivalent of the 9-11 shock that tells him that, geez, you know, we got to re-alter our foreign policy. Oh, I see. Okay. No, a, a shock like that is not a necessary condition. Right? That could be a sufficient condition for a change. I think it would be a sufficient condition for change, but I want to claim it's a necessary condition. Like, you can, you can anticipate failure and serious painful failure without there actually being a shock, as the Argentines did in the Malvinas. I mean, nothing had changed on the islands in 1982. It just so happened that 1983 was the 150th anniversary. So they got this arbitrary deadline in their minds, and they're just not going to stand for it. Like, that's a self-imposed thing. There's no shock. So it's the uh, perception of, of loss can be, you know, a projection. And Gorbachev clearly, you know, he, he told people when he came to office, we have to find a way to reduce our military spending. We have to find a way to deal with deferred investment in infrastructure. We have to compete with the Americans and everybody else on these other indexes. We're a mutual And he had the same story on the Canadian free trade story in 1988. I mean, nothing. the wheels weren't going to fall off the wagon tomorrow. But uh, the productivity concerns meant that in 10 years you would have declining quality of life uh, you would have labor unrest, you would have inflation. And so, you know, we have to deal with this in some radical way because that's the wall we're driving toward. It's not an imminent experience shock, but it is a perception of loss that's really driving the whole deliberation.
Richard, are you saying that nothing's happened differently after 9-11? Or you're saying everything up until 9-11? No, I'm worried that these critical concepts in this discussion, mm -hmm. right. what is change and what's not change, what's a failure that's imminent and what's yeah. not, are really loose. That's in the book. It's lo they're less loose in the book. They're probably not as tight as you want, but they're less loose in the book. There are ambiguities here. There are irreducible ambiguities here. But you know, there are irreducible ambiguities in everything we do in this field. And so I don't think I'm hampered by that more than anybody Could else. Can you tell us, um, in, in a non post hoc way, what the, what the concept would look like in operational terms? Give me a case. Uh, Japan today. Actually, we may be on the cusp of one, right? Because all of a sudden we're starting to see hand wringing about the necessity of doing away with Article 9. We're starting to see uh, people speculating in the open press about the desirability of getting an independent Japanese nuclear capability because of North Korea. So there really is an interestingly new perception of a potential catastrophe. But isn't there always hand-wringing with politics? Isn't sort of a, the nature of politics to be, good God, these guys are screwing it up, and you know, we got to do it another way because these guys are screwing it up so bad. I, I just think that's the natural no, I don't think so. hustle of politics, no? I think what Rick was saying, how do you get, and this is what I was trying to get at, is where do you get the opposite? Like, have you coded those cases? I tend to agree with Rick that most things, first of all, you change policy when you perceive some failure, but why do it? And if you give me cases where it didn't, I mean, it's very rare in security, but also the domains of gains and losses, it's just hard to do that. I, I don't understand how, how you're operationalizing that. And, you know, it's just it's an aggregating it. You, you have to discover the subjective constructions, for sure. But, you know, the dramatic changes are very rare. And but most of the time... The government, right? Let's say you said tomorrow Japan is going to be one, but they have the same government state characteristics. And the U.S. has the state same state characteristics. Most of your theory would predict that we would be good at balance change. Right? But uh -huh. we do have dramatic change. Not as much as you might think. I mean, I wouldn't say American foreign policy changes dramatically very often. I would say very rarely. That would be my take. Doesn't your Canadian case sort of follow up with, with Rick's idea about normal politics? I mean, normal politics in Canada is hammering over the U.S. <laughs> yeah, but not, but not embracing free trade, right? I mean, that's that's a leap of faith. That's a shot in the dark that everybody acknowledges. If you're going to take things to level organizational theory and how people are thinking about bureaucracy, then everyday, everyday, everyday bureaucracy, everyday government is hand-wringing over people. Oh, yeah, but try, right. Trying not necessarily free, you know, a bilateral free trade, but then there's been, there's all sorts of other things that have tried. You right. Know, making alliances with Europe or issue, distracting a free trade with Chile, making closer relationships with countries yeah. in the Pacific I wring my hands every day over what's in my inbox, right? But that doesn't prompt me to, you know, quit my job. Yeah, you very quickly sort of define, sort of, you very quickly assume that, that normal politics is, is inertial. And, and I think... On, on the, the behavior side. Hmm? On the behavior side. Right? Canadian trade policy was consistent from, you know, 1856 to 1988. Didn't change. Is Democratic Probably in public. Is it even worse than my Democratic politics? That's going to make me why I'm in trouble. 
I'm not interested in hand wringing that, but I'm very interested in panicking. <laughs> I want to thank David uh, with some hand clapping. <laughs> <laughs>